But Daniel, the real question is, is it war with France? Is it war? I, uh, I really I really would like it to be war, actually. I've been playing a lot of war simulation games recently. And um, in one of them, you, you can play the UK and um, you, during World War II. And you can diverge from the historical path and decide to declare war on France. And every time I've done that, I, I've won thanks to the wonderful uh, power of the Royal Navy. I'm- For or against declaring war on France, Chris? You're always gonna you're always gonna win against France. Aren't you? I mean, you should give yourself more of a challenge. I'm, if I think a war now, maybe it's a small war, but a war would really give us a, a lift. I think it's war. A warette. A warette. Yeah. The latest from the Adam War Institute. <laughs> Some skirmishes, at least. <laughs> this is why we don't do foreign policy because if we did, we'd just be cancelled straight away. That's right. So. We're all incredibly pro declaring war on France. <laughs> Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addis Within Shoots podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and I had a program, Samuel Pryor and Christopher Snowden, the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. This week, we'll be discussing the pace of reopening, tobacco harm reduction, and the UK's economic recovery. The UK now has single-digit daily deaths from COVID-19, the lowest since last September. But the Office for National Statistics indicating the deaths are below average for this time of year. The rapid decline in deaths and cases had led to calls for speeding up Britain's reopening. Chris, is there still a case for keeping restaurants and bars closed indoors, particularly with the chaotic roller coaster of a weather that we've, we've seen over the last couple of days? <laughs> yeah, the weather really has been a swine, hasn't it? Uh, things would be so much different if it was just like last year. We were so spoilt with the weather last year. It was the best spring I can remember. This is the worst spring I can remember. So, obviously, the government couldn't predict that. I mean, it's not unexpected that Britain would have bad weather, obviously, but um, <laughs> it would be less of a problem. I, I think, clearly, there is a big case for speeding things up. I think there has been now for, for quite a long time. Even Neil Ferguson, the modelers, seem to be accepting that. If I was to try and steel man the case for maintaining the roadmap, you could say that... You know, you, you look around the world, there are still places where suddenly cases really surge up. And there are still a few places in Britain. Sheffield's got a relatively high rate. There's one or two kind of hot spots still where potentially things could flare up. But I think the bigger picture is that even if things flare up, very, very few people are going to die. That with the number of people vaccinated, it, it probably won't flare up very much. That we can keep our below one or not much above one for a brief period of time without too much problem. So given that these restrictions apparently are costing the hospitality industry about £200 million a week, yeah, I think there's a very strong case because let's face it, people are meeting up in each other's homes anyway. Sure, you know, I haven't looked at the Google mobility data on that, but I mean, it it must be going on because people aren't going to just sit in the garden and get rained on or get frozen. So in a way, it's surprising that the cases haven't gone up given that I suspect there's a lot of illicit meetings going on. So yeah, they should do it, but they're not going to. They're not going to because we're less than two weeks away now. There's always a carrot being dangled. Yeah. Go, oh, it's only another week, it's only another two weeks or what have you. And public opinion is still basically very cautious and agrees with the government. Yeah, it's interesting. We were told um, data, not dates, but it still seems we're focused on dates, isn't it, Daniel? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's a shame in some ways, because I, I think there is, as Chris said, a very strong case for pushing when it comes to indoor dining, especially pushing reopening 
back, uh, so forward for by a couple of weeks. But as you said, it's only a couple of weeks away, so it's unlikely to have any sort of major change. I think probably my steel man for keeping indoor dining to the initial schedule would be, well, you've got all these businesses that probably already have their planning sorted for that two-week deadline in terms of schedule sorted, deliveries organized, those sort of things. But at the same time, you've got, because of the weather, they probably hired on more staff than would be necessary at the moment. They, they probably have staff that, that would have been working, but now because umbrellas are being blown over in Alfresco Dining in London, which is a very personal experience of mine from yesterday, um, umbrella fell on someone's table and started smashing drinks. So it's not ide- the ideal environment for trying to help the hospitality sector recover. So if we, I think it's there's definitely a good case for pushing it forward and helping some of these hospitality businesses recover better. I mean, you know, two weeks of this is talking 200 million a week for the hospitality sector and money loss. That's nearly half a billion pounds that we could do just from pushing uh, the dates forward a little bit. But again, as, as Chris said, I think it's very unlikely to happen. And we are wedded to this dates rather than data concept, even though that's pretty much the opposite of what the government's been saying. Yeah, Daniel, I think that's right. And it really speaks to the government's broader set of difficulties in terms of the, the COVID reopening and all the decisions they're going to have to be making about whether to reissue and withdraw the guidance about working from home, about whether or not to change the rule of six in the next reopening. And then this thorny question about foreign holidays. Chris, I'd be keen to get your thoughts in terms of, do you want the government to kind of immediately withdraw all guidance 100% back to normality or are you willing to accept some level of ongoing control let's say travel or mask wearing on public transport june the 21st they did say they get rid of all restrictions i think that's what they should do i agree that foreign travel is maybe the most contentious of those because the only thing that can derail us now is a, uh, a mutation. As far as I can tell, it's looking less and less likely that a mutation will evolve to escape the vaccine. Obviously, it hasn't happened yet, despite you know, however many millions of people getting the virus. So I would be cautious about foreign travel. I don't think the government is going to be, though, actually, by the looks of it. It seems like it's pretty keen to allow people to get out of the country. Although where they can go to is the question. I mean, places like Malta and Cyprus, they're not that big. They're going to have millions of people coming in from EasyJet. So, I mean, personally, I'm not booking a foreign holiday, put it that way, this year. So I really hope the weather improves in this country. I wouldn't fancy it at the best of times. So, yeah, but, but apart from that, no, just not see any reason for, for mask wearing. I, you know, I think we just got to accept that the measures that we've taken already with the vaccinations should be enough for the infection fatality rate to be so low that we treat it like flu. To the best of my knowledge, that's what the science is pointing to. On the foreign travel question, I, I agree, Chris, they seem, the government seemed to be actually more gung-ho about this than perhaps some people expected. We're yet to see the full details of the announcement for this kind of traffic light system. It seems like most of Europe is going to be placed on the amber list where you can travel, but you'd have to self-quarantine for up to 10 days when you come back. But to me, I wonder whether that's going to be a significant issue that actually puts people off from making those journeys in the first place. You know, I think there's a lot of people that there's going to be so much pent-up demand for having that foreign travel and foreign holiday that obviously you're going to have some people who are, who are still 
reluctant to do so. But if someone's hell-bent on having a foreign holiday, then I think it would be quite comfortable and quite happy with having a self-quarantine period, assuming that it doesn't go on for too long. And there's also the question of whether actually that could be relaxed for people who've had two vaccinations. And it seems like the government's talking about actually relaxing some of those self-quarantine restrictions for that. So there is definitely going to be some increase in, in foreign travel when they do decide to to kind of reduce those restrictions there. On the working from home point, I think that even if you do have the expected uh, change in guidance around working from home, there's more and more evidence coming out that a lot of people are, are wanting to, to stick to this for more of the long term. There was a good recent study from the NBER that talked about, at least in the case of the US, and obviously it'll be different for the UK, but it's instructive. It seems like there's going to be a lot of this working from home culture actually sticking around. Their study found that around 20% of full work days are likely to be supplied from home after the pandemic ends. Now that depends on obviously a lot of companies' decisions and it's not up to, um, to people who work at those companies entirely as to what goes on there. But it seems like even if we do have a change in those sort of restrictions, people's behavior and people's preferences are going to affect this just as much as what the actual guidance says. I think you're right, Chris, that the, the biggest potential threat is um, foreign arrivals. I wouldn't be quite as, as optimistic around the sense that just because no variant has yet managed to completely escape the vaccines, that doesn't mean that it won't happen, particularly as there's kind of larger reservoirs of covid going around in all different parts of the world, uh, whilst other parts of the world, like the UK, are highly vaccinated, it, it, there is that ongoing risk um, that I think we have to prepare for of a uh, vaccine-resistant strain or, or an increasingly vaccine-resistant strain that, that it just the vaccines work less effectively. But I wouldn't like to see that done with lockdowns and con continuing non-pharmaceutical interventions. I think it's about uh, updating the vaccines and using vaccine boosters and just having a regular program of, of monitoring, like effectively we do with the flu, that we know this is probably going to be something that's going to keep circling around the world every year, even if it doesn't quite mutate as quickly as the flu, it, it could potentially be, be something that we just need to keep an eye on. Uh, that, though, will include not necessarily going down these lockdown paths every winter. And I worry that there's going to be this temptation that if there's a new strain and the, there seems to be a bit of circulation of it, they'll, they'll lock down, you know, basically every year or so. And that's something we have to push back against because we don't want lockdowns to become the, the normal virus response policy. They, they should be a, a reflection of a failure of every other policy, of a failure of testing and tracing and a failure of vaccinations rather than a, a first tool the government's pulled towards. If they try another lockdown, I'll be with James Dellingpole marching down Whitehall, to be honest. I think that would be enough would be enough my understanding of the science which obviously isn't you know top right is that there's only so much a virus can mutate before it ceases to transmit between humans you know and all the mutations we've had and there have been lots of them they have been more pernicious in various different ways but as far as i can tell the vaccines deal with them there may be a case for booster jabs we don't know how long vaccination lasts and how long the antibodies stay around but i don't think we can go through this again. I think, it, you know, I supported the lockdown in January because it seemed stupid and reckless to allow the virus to spread when we just got loads of vaccines um, and we'd already suffered so much damage from the previous lockdowns. But no, we're not going to do this every year and I will be the first one out the door protesting if they try it. And I don't honestly don't think that it would be necessary and I don't think they'll try it. 
I worry that there's always going to be calls for it. <laughs> oh, sure, there will be. Yeah, I mean, if we if it just goes through my head that if we were in 2009 and you had the H1N1 flu outbreak next year, there would be mass calls and probably quite successfully to shut down schools and shut down socialising for what ended up being a false alarm uh, of a pandemic. And now that this is our our first go to move when there's a new virus, rather than using less obtrusive means like testing and tracing and um, vaccines and border closures. I wouldn't say it's a first you know, resort. It's, it was the last resort. I think the, you know, the benefits of test and trace are hugely exaggerated, really. And you know, Independent Sage kept saying we need to have another lockdown to get a functioning test and trace system. Well, if we haven't got a functioning test and trace system by now, we never will have. The problem with test and trace is, is people don't self-isolate. Mm-hmm. It's a problem with people coming back from foreign holidays. That's why they had to introduce a 10-year prison sentence for people who don't do it, because it's the only way they can scare people into doing it. But loads of people still won't. That's the, the real problem. So, no, I, it was a last resort, I think, quite genuinely, for certainly for most people, maybe not independent sage. Um, and in the future, you know, maybe one day another virus will come along that would justify a lockdown, but it should come down to the cost and benefits. And as we rake over the coals of the last 14 months and start looking at what the costs uh, were and what the benefits may have been, which of course are always going to be somewhat hypothetical, we can see whether it truly was worth it or not. Well, talking of costs and benefits, maybe it's time to move on to our next topic about tobacco harm reduction. In a new paper for the ASI, The Golden Opportunity, Daniel sets out how the UK has taken a world-leading approach to regulating e-cigarettes and other reduced-risk products, but believes there's still much more to be done. Daniel, what makes the UK different from other countries in our approach to vaping? I mean, the first off, we've satisfied the bare minimum of not banning them or regulating them out of existence. It's nice. It's very but nice. Basically, since these... I know. It's fantastic. It's a, if that's your kind of optimistic scenario, then it's quite depressing about the government's general regulatory approach to these sort of things. But yeah, what we've done since they really came onto the market has taken a much more hands-off approach to regulation than most other countries in the world. And that comes down to kind of product restrictions... And also, though, to a lesser extent, to, to promotion and advertising restrictions, there's still plenty of them. And a lot of them come from EU regulation, the Tobacco Products Directive specifically. But even within that, we've had a fair bit of wiggle room so that we've had, you know, at least government campaigns on switching to e-cigarettes being allowed on TV and, uh, and radio and, and things like this, despite the EU restrictions that say we shouldn't really be able to do that. And the results of that have been very clear. There's some lots of good evidence that Public Health England have examined looking at how the kind of marginal impact on additional quits per year has been pretty significant in the, the tens of thousands at a bare minimum, but arguably much more. We've had the classic Public Health England statement of e being at least 95% safer than smoking. And that's something that's been the case for several years now. Um, and that has maybe not translated, uh, as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, into public knowledge as much, but it's still good that the kind of leading public health bodies have been broadly pro this, um, not just PHE, you've got the kind of usual tobacco control suspects when it comes to British Lung Foundation, when it comes to ash even have been fairly reasonable when it comes to e-cigarettes, although 
less so when it comes to other reduced risk products. And I mean, the end result of this is that we've you know, made a, a significant impact on the smoking rate through a, a free market, innovative technological means. It's not the stick of, uh, of tobacco taxation, plain packaging, et cetera, but the carrot of increasing choice and options available to people who do want to make the, the switch to uh, something that isn't cigarettes. So Chris, you've been in this space for quite a long time. I'm, I'm wondering what you make of the UK's very different approach to vaping. What, what do you think explains uh, the, the relative kind of liberal or one might even say libertarian turn in policymaking in this space as opposed to everything else? And why is the UK quite different to a lot of other countries that have been a lot more restrictive or even banned vaping? It's largely good luck, basically. Uh, there was a handful of influential people in tobacco control who about eight years ago could have gone in a prohibitionist direction, but didn't. And everyone else pretty much has followed suit in Britain. So nearly all public health people in Britain are pro-vaping. Nearly all public health people in, say, Australia, and indeed America, really, are anti-vaping. How can this be? Well, they just go with the flow. They follow the crowd. Um, it's a good thing in Britain that it's happened, but it still shows you the kind of men mentality. And the fact that most countries are basically anti-vaping also shows you a certain mentality. So it was, it was good luck that we had a few people, I'll name them, you know, people like Linda Bold, um, who actually deals with smokers from time to time, you know, actually like works with in smoking cessation and, and could see that people were quitting without any real effort, thanks to vaping, but they weren't quitting with Shampix and Nicorette and so on. And they managed to influence Ash, who really pulled the strings in this country when it comes to tobacco policy. And Ash, quite reluctantly at first, lent in the direction of vaping. And they've seen and they've heard from various smoking cessation clinics around the country that yes it really does work in other countries they rather like ash naturally had a kind of prohibitionist view and they didn't have any real pushback so they went down that road yeah it seems like in a lot of other places and i i think of australia here where, where the, the public health establishment and and one of uh, your old sparring partners um the likes of simon chapman uh very much came down to the view that these products are associated with the tobacco industry and therefore they are inherently evil and unethical and we're not interested in it whatsoever. We're not going to investigate it. What I'm also interested in, though, is, and Daniel, you go into this quite a bit in your report, is just the kind of general misinformation about vaping. I mean, I was uh, telling you a story of a, I was speaking to a, a nurse the, the other day who was, who was telling me about their fact that, well, in fact, vaping is just as bad as smoking. And of course, I, I, I very subtly quoted back uh, Public Health England's finding, but it does seem like it's quite common. And a lot of it does come out of the US and, and what happened with uh, THC products and lung scarring as a result. That's this created this false impression of the product. Yeah, I've, you look at the, the ASH survey data on this, the amount of smokers who have the correct belief that vaping is way less harmful than smoking has been very low for a number of years and has continued to, to get worse actually over the years which is a, a stunning indictment of any sort of public health communication on this it clearly hasn't worked to address people's concerns I think it's only around four in ten smokers now hold that belief that the correct belief about vaping being safer um, and a lot of the time this plays into why smokers haven't decided to try switching to them uh, if you ask smokers why it is that they haven't tried e-cigarettes, for example, then the most um, or the second most common reason is that 
they're worried about safety and safety concerns. And this comes from a lot of really quite terrible quality media reporting on the E-Valley cases in the US where obviously you had black market THC vapes causing some particular issues. And and it's well, it's now well established that normal commercially available vapes in the UK and the US had absolutely nothing to do with this. But there's these stories, there's very regular junk science reporting about vaping causing X or Y health issues. And depending on the study, it's usually based on some very tenuous results in mice, um, or it's just giving, it's just extrapolating conclusions that are completely impossible to make from the study itself. So you've got this combination of media reporting and just general um, lack of awareness that's really contributing to smokers not making the switch. The other aspect of this is that smokers who do try vaping and a lot have, but they go back to smoking, they just don't particularly agree with or, or like the product very much. And maybe they don't like that it's, it doesn't feel enough like smoking a cigarette. That's an, another very common reason why smokers go back to cigarettes after they've switched to vaping. And this is a slightly different issue. And it comes down to the fact that Again, a, a lot of smokers aren't aware of other alternatives. E-cigs are the most popular. They're the ones that have been embraced by the public health establishment in the UK. But other things like heated tobacco or, or nicotine pouches are very low levels of awareness, um, even though most of the evidence available to them, most of the independent evidence, as well as industry data, suggests that they're of a similar magnitude of, of risk to vaping, i.e. a lot safer than cigarettes. There's some alternatives which are just completely banned in the UK and indeed most of the EU. Snooze is the typical one that comes to mind, a a kind of pouch that you can put in between your top lip and your gum. And this has undoubtedly contributed to places like Sweden, where it is allowed having the lowest smoking rates in Europe and helping people to make the switch there and saving lives there. So there's kind of the two big issues are this misinformation point and the fact that a lot of people aren't aware about the other alternatives if they've tried vaping and it hasn't worked for them. And the kind of worry here is that vaping numbers in the UK over the past few years really plateaued. Now, part of that can be explained by, well, people are making the switch from vaping. So, you know, some people who switch to vaping and then go on to to quit entirely means that you're going to get some reduction in numbers. But a lot of this is just that there's this more stubborn I I guess, cohort of smokers who either they don't want to make the switch because actually they quite enjoy cigarettes, which is less of a concern from a liberal free market perspective, or slightly more of a concern, they're still worried about the safety effects, uh, the safety concerns, and they don't know about other alternatives. I mean, the misinformation is is appalling. If you look at the surveys, people were better informed about e-cigarettes 10 years ago when they didn't really know anything about them than they are now. Even in England, where the government's made a concerted effort to educate people, there are more people think that e-cigarettes are as dangerous or more dangerous than smoking than 10 years ago. And it's much worse in Europe. It's much worse in, um, in America. And this is because of a concerted effort from the tobacco control establishment to scare people about it. And the tobacco control establishment has been essentially fraudulent for at least 20 years. I mean, they just make things up. They just lie. And there's so much junk science 
in tobacco control or going back to stuff about, you know, smoking bans don't hurt the hospitality industry or there's a massive drop in heart attacks after smoking bans are introduced or half the people who smoked did so because they saw someone smoking in a film or whatever. You know, they've just been saying whatever they wanted for decades now and no one cares because it's smoking and smoking's not very popular. And those same people now have turned their dark arts towards lying about vaping. And I get a review of all the new e-cigarette studies every week. There's a lot of them. There's on average about 80 new studies a week, of which about 60 were would be ridiculous. I mean, there was one fairly minor example very recently trying to say there's a gateway effect between vaping and drinking energy drinks. It's the same kind of quackery that they use to say there's a gateway between vaping and smoking. You know, there clearly isn't. Places where people are vaping a lot have very low smoking rates, like Britain. If there was a gateway effect, you'd expect to see smoking rates rising amongst young people by now. We're not, we're not, we're seeing the opposite because it's a gateway from smoking. But, you know, this is what happens when you let these charlatans free and you give them masses of grant money, as they get particularly in places like California, to denigrate this alternative to smoking and it's not looking good i mean britain is almost the last holdout now against this stuff and if there's a change of uh, mentality in britain with public health england going and this new what's it called office for health promotion coming in if dido harding whoever is running the office for health promotion takes a dislike to e-cigarettes then you know the expert opinion could even change over here it's it, one of the things that, that frustrates me about this is that PHE and, and in general, the UK public health establishment seems to, or we, we hear that it has big influence over other public health establishments in similar countries, you know, Health Canada taking the lead from PHE or um, various other examples. But th- this hasn't really been the case at all. I mean, you had in Canada a few days ago, I think it was the CNN tower being lit up for uh, <laughs> anti-vaping awareness week or whatever it, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just it's completely insane and, and it, it frustrates me that actually in this area PHE doesn't influence the other equivalents in, in similar countries here and it seems like actually even though they, they pay lip service to oh you know PHE is a world leader here and actually they're, they're doing a good job that they, they just don't do that at all. I mean, obviously, the US has got a, a large amount of influence in this area when it comes to something like Canada. So they have to they have to kind of pay attention to that. But the, the gateway effect one annoys me as well. That study, I saw that that you mentioned, Chris, about the, the energy drinks effect. And, and the tea and coffee effect as well. If you put sugar in yes. your tea or coffee, that is also a, a gateway. But not if you don't put tea. Not if you don't put sugar in. <laughs> it's almost like these people haven't learned that causation is not... <laughs> Or correlation is not causation. It? It's so obvious. Our people who take risks on one thing tend to take risks on other things. Very small Absolutely. risks as well. Every day I, I put sugar in my coffee as another risk uh, to my <laughs> to my health and well-being. I'm just kind of interested on a final thought about the government's goal for kind of smoke-free by, by 2030, which is interesting to find as less than 5% smoking rate in the UK. I'm wondering if, in a sense, um, despite all the the kind of good that vaping's done and all these potential alternatives, whether or not we've kind of maxed out tobacco harm reduction, whether there's just going to be, whether you like it or not, a sticky cohort of smokers and and that you're not going to be able to push it down substantially. Maybe you'll get it to 5% at some point, but inevitably some group of people are always going to want to smoke. And that's something we're going to have to accept as a society and just make sure they have alternatives. Or do you think that there's still a lot more to be done um, potentially to to bring down the the level of smoking? I think both. I mean, Sweden has more or less got to 5%. 
without using all that much coercion, as, as Dan says, mainly it's through the use of snooze. I mean, we don't know, do we? This is the question. I mean, the, Theresa May created this target without ever consulting with anyone, let alone consulting with smokers. How, how we, is there any evidence at all that less than 5% of the population even intends to not be smoking by 2030, let alone actually will not be smoking by 2030? It's an arbitrary figure I know it's in, in Dan's report, he kind of takes it seriously and I can see why, because if the government does want to reach us, it really is going to have to embrace tobacco harm reduction much more than it has done so far. But it shouldn't exist. I mean, it, the government's got no right to say how many people should be smoking at any point in time. It's possible if we get loads of great new nicotine products on the market between now and then that they could reach 5%. But it shouldn't be a government target any more than the government should have a target about you know, I think I did an interview in Ireland recently and the government's got a target of per capita alcohol consumption has got to be 9.1 litres by 2025. I mean, where does this number come from and why? And really, why is it any of the government's damn business? Dan, what's the defence here? I mean, it, it is an arbitrary target. It ignores the fact that there could be more than 5% of people in the UK who both smoke and have no intention or desire to quit or switch to any alternative because they're actually damn happy with smoking cigarettes and that they don't want to hear or, or they don't want to try any other alternatives and you know from a free market liberal perspective i think that's fair enough but given that the government has set itself this target and the fact that i think you know it's it's a win-win if people do decide to make the switch to to alternative products then there's still a good case for, for trying to find measures that are non-coercive and that are a liberal and free market based to try and achieve said target. And there is there are plenty of ways that we could uh, double down on the approach that we've taken so far. It's not like we've run out of room for change or maneuver here. And I mean, Brexit's the kind of key one in terms of changing a lot of the e-cigarette regulations. I mean, something as simple as when you walk into a vape shop looking at an e-cig package and it says vaping is up to is at least 95% safer than smoking. That in itself would, I think, be a huge um, and also cost-free way of helping to tackle some of the misinformation that's out there. Um, and there's also issues related to the, the regulation of the products themselves that come from the EU level that we're now able to change when it comes to some of these arbitrary nicotine limits that mean if you're a heavy smoker, then some of the vaping products out there might not be able to scratch the itch when it comes to nicotine. If we change that and relax some of those restrictions, it would make things a lot easier. But the other thing here is, you know, the, the availability of other alternatives that aren't e-cigarettes, because as we mentioned earlier, there is a big group of smokers who have tried e-cigarettes, which demonstrates, you know, at least some of them have a desire to switch to a different product, but they don't like them um, because they don't feel enough like smoking a cigarette. And, you know, if we, if we change some of the regulations around things like heated tobacco, if we legalize snus, if we looked at some more research on nicotine pouches, which don't contain any tobacco. Not that really makes a difference to their risk profile. If anything, it is probably about the same as snus, i.e. no risk whatsoever, um, according to most of the available evidence. But if we, if we kind of look at relaxing some of the restrictions around those as well uh, and increasing people's awareness, I think that will be a big help. So there's definitely lots that we can do. It's just a question whether there's any sort of will in government to, to actually look at these things and why I continue to, to rabbit on about these things in reports and in media. Well, talking about trying to hit targets, let's move on to our next 
discussion about the UK's economic recovery. The prospects for the UK economy are looking increasingly rosy, with the Bank of England now forecasting an unprecedented 7.25% growth in 2021, the strongest and largest growth we've had since 1941. So I guess to start off, Matthew, why do you think that the economic prospects are looking more rosy than just a few months ago? What's changed? Mm. Well, look, to start with, the, the prospects are looking um, like almost shockingly rosy, almost too good to be true. We've seen just in a couple of months, the growth forecast jump up from about 4% in 2021 to over 7%. Business creation has surged. The government's borrowing less than was projected. Um, unemployment that was expected to peak at about 6.5% is, is now hovering around 5% and may have already peaked. And, and all the kind of metrics when it comes to consumer and producer confidence are, are pointing upwards. To start with, I think the number one factor is just the extremely successful vaccine rollout has just given country and, and the reopening a lot of confidence. I think it was a little of uncertainty, even with all these this this timeline, that whether or not it would be able to come true. And now as, as our first discussion earlier, kind of concluded, if anything, it's going too slowly. Um, you add on top of that the fact that we've got huge amounts of savings by consumers who haven't had the opportunity to spend, the kind of professional class who has something like 140 billion in the bank. You have a lot of businesses that are seeing a lot of money as well, they're seeing about 100 billion on their balance sheets. So although this has been a difficult time for certain industries, uh, for the industries that have managed to keep them plodding along, they're, they're kind of ready to go and, and ready to spend and, and ready to, to start living life again normally. And um, one of the reasons why the UK economy fell so much as well was also a bit of a statistical, um, uh, well, statistical calculation issue, which is the way the Office for National Statistics chose to calculate uh, the, the reduction in public self public sector activity um, actually factored in the fact that teachers were teaching less and that there was less activity going on. While in some other countries, they didn't necessarily factor that in. So it might have looked like the UK had a big, bigger fall and now the UK gets to have a, a bigger increase. That said, though, of course, the, Euro, the Eurozone has just fallen into a double-dip recession. So it seems like the, the vaccine and, and the reopening is just going to have a very positive effect. And that you mentioned there about the, the kind of savings buildup over lockdown and the Bank of England actually is a bit less optimistic around this than I think some others are in terms of having a a huge post-lockdown boost in spending. And they make the point about how a lot of the built-up savings is actually concentrated amongst groups that don't tend to to spend as much, if you look particularly the elderly and the better off, for example. But it certainly seems like even, even with that in mind, the growth forecasts are still unbelievably optimistic. I guess that when it comes to like savings from other groups as well, and it looks like obviously people going out to, to pubs and clubs and, and using hospitality again, do you think that some of the concerns about economic scarring over the course of lockdown were maybe overblown, Chris? Has state support actually proven more effective than we initially expected? In terms of unemployment, yes, because I was one of the people saying we're going to have like 4 million people unemployed. And I no longer think that because I didn't expect the furlough scheme to go on for 18 months. Right? <laughs> I thought it was going to go on for three months or six months or maybe nine months. And then once it, once it was un, unraveled, we would see a lot of people at work. I, I, I don't think we've seen the peak of unemployment. I think it will go up. We still got like four and a half million people on furlough. A lot of those will be in hospitality and they'll get their jobs back soon, but a lot won't, including some of the people in hospitality. So I'm, yeah, I'm more optimistic about that. I'm pleased that the government borrowing has not been as big as 
was originally anticipated. It's been in a way, actually, I know it's been like 300 billion pounds, but it's still been surprisingly small, actually, compared to what it could have been. Um, I'm not that impressed with the with the forecasts. I mean, I don't really believe them anyway, because they're always wrong. But the yeah, GDP fell by 10% last year. So bouncing back 7.5% is still a very long way off a V-shaped recovery. What can you say in conclusion? It's It could have been worse, I guess, but it's still really, really bad. And I think people are slowly waking up to the fact that we are very likely to have some quite significant inflation, which will put a spanner in the works in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, on that point, Matthew, there is a lot of talk about there being a substantial risk of inflation, both from public spending and also the nearly £1 trillion worth of quantitative easing from the Bank of England. Do you think that this would be particularly bad thing or should we not actually be that worried about inflation risks yeah i'm, I'm not quite sure what to conclude here and I, I don't think we quite know yet so from a, a an asi mgdp targeting perspective uh, our goal has always been kind of over the medium term to have a, a notional gdp increase of you know four or five percent we've probably as we've known undershot that for quite a number of years and therefore a little bit of inflation that, that kind of gets the economy moving wouldn't necessarily be such a bad thing. And, and it could actually be in a sense that the, the Bank of England and even the Federal Reserve are basically coming to that view themselves. They both said that they accept that inflation might be a little bit out in, in increase of where the target normally is, but that doesn't really worry them too much because they, we've had such a um, lack of inflation in previous years. Now, the, the danger though is, as I think Chris is getting at, that effectively we've, we've overdone it we've overstimulated um, we don't need the, the bank of england to continue with their billions and billions of dollars worth of asset purchases or, or quantitative easing um, in the u.s case we don't actually really need biden's infrastructure plan there's already enough savings there's already been enough steps spending and enough stimulus um, and at some point you're just going to inflate consumer prices and that's not going to be good i think we are going to see perhaps a little bit more inflation than we first expect and and that could be a bit dangerous it's a question if it it's it's almost um, it's always it's always about expectations with inflation. It's if if the expectations of inflation get, grow out of hand, and then you can end up in quite a, a downwards economic spiral. I, I don't buy the you know, modern monetary theorist light approach that we've taken that we don't have to worry about inflation anymore. I think eventually, even and even the MMT is. We, amid this, you're basically limited by your ability to produce the, the the supply side of the economy. And if you have too much money chasing too few goods, that's definitely when you end up with inflation, and then that. Can end up being quite damaging if it, if it goes too far and the problem is we don't exactly know what that point is and i think that's the biggest issue with, with um, modern monetary theory is it just presumes the government somehow knows and the political incentives are well enough aligned to know when to stop spending and, and when to stop borrowing and when to stop you know effectively creating money or whatever else it may be and i, I think there's just so much uncertainty right now about that when that moment should be uh, there's something that we're gonna have to watch very closely I guess one kind of positive here is that we, we've got this level of or this expected level of growth that's higher than average. And even if we might be skeptical of the forecast, they are taken seriously in the circles of the UK government. And do, do you have a hope that the kind of forecast that we have actually will influence the government not to proceed with some of the rumoured tax increases and some of the, you know, not so rumoured, but planned tax increases uh, to cover the cost of COVID spending. Of course, in the US, we've got the Biden administration, which seems very happy to do things like double the rate paid on capital gains. But do you think, Chris, that because we've got this 
more positive outlook in terms of growth, then we're going to get a slightly more hands-off approach on tax policy from the government than we might have expected. Possibly, because the, the tax plans, it's mainly corporation tax, isn't it, they're looking at putting up, they're based on the previous predictions. You know, I still don't really agree that 7.5% is that great. It doesn't get you anywhere near back to where we were before. I don't know where it gets us, maybe back to like 2013 levels of growth. So, yeah, you would expect a, a big bounce when you've had a massive dip. The bigger the dip, the bigger the, the bounce is going to be. But it's only like a partial return to normality. And if the government doesn't bring tax increase is realistically because it's not going to cut very much or anything it's going to be borrowing more money and this is where the inflation comes back into it you know uh, the idea that i mean the modern money modern monetary theory is just clown show economics i mean it just should not be taken seriously by anyone it's, it's, it's ludicrous uh, i wish it were true because i would love to be able to print 900 billion pounds a year and there'd be no repercussions but the most likely repercussions are as always, that by debasing the currency, you're, you're, you're causing inflation. And I think that's particularly likely to happen over the next 12 months because people have got a huge amount of money in the bank. And this is a difference between now and, and 28, uh, 2008. People look back at 2008 and all the quantitative easing and say, well, we didn't get that much inflation. Well, actually, it was nudging 5% at one point. But yeah, be that as it may, it's true. But that's because the money didn't go into people's pockets. It wasn't helicopter money. It went to, to the banks, essentially, to um, to... You know, source out their balance books this time it's gone into people's pockets which is nice in a sense but it does mean that a huge number of people are all going to be out spending a huge amount of money all at the same time at a time when there'll be shortages in various different areas because we've had a pandemic for the last year or so it's a classic case of too much money chasing too few goods and the money that's being spent is printed i think it would be a miracle if we don't see inflation the question is only how much if it's four or five percent for a while that's okay but it could easily spiral out of control i'm hearing from people in the supply chain saying that already on the books are price rises of six eight ten twelve percent on you know fundamental kind of manufacturing things that that, that that inevitably lead to increases in pricing through the rest of the economy plus we've got a labor shortage because of brexit so employers are having to offer more money to staff you offer more money to staff that leads to inflation and so it goes the fact that we haven't had inflation for such a long time has given people a real false sense of um optimism about this i think yeah it's it, again i think it's just just quite hard to say um, i did like uh rishi's comments this week i think it was to the wall street journal conference about um how he is cautiously optimistic and he doesn't see much need for further uh, tax increases. I think that's quite a good sign. I'm not as optimistic that the Treasury is going to rethink the freeze in personal tax allowances. Um, I do hope because a lot of the increase in corporate tax is kind of in the future um, over the coming years that when when they get to that point, because we're in a bit more of a rosy path, um, they can reduce uh, the, the corporate tax rate from where it was intending to be increased to. We've got to remember though, of course, that they're not actually increasing uh, taxes to pay down the debt at this point. There's still actually quite substantial deficits um, that are projected over the coming years. What they're effectively doing is increasing taxes to cover the ongoing spending commitments that this government has made, because this is quite frankly a, a quite big government um, Tory administration. Uh, and they have a lot of wishes to spend on a lot of different things. Um, the next big one being all these questions around social care. And if they want to try to fund uh, basically a, a publicly funded NHS-style social care system, that's going to cost billions. They're going to have to raise revenue from somewhere if it's not going to be put on debt. So it's all those kind of po ongoing policy commitments that are the real issue, not necessarily 
um, COVID. That said, though, if the economy does grow, there's more to spread around. There's more tax revenue and the government can do more. So as we consistently say, the focus needs to be on economic growth and, and then everything else kind of fixes itself. It, the, the problem at the moment is because the UK has had such low economic growth for the last decade and, and there's then had this huge re- second recession after the, 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 the Great Recession in, in the 2000s. We're at the situation where the government's trying to do all these things and all these demands on government, but there's not as much money to go around uh, to, to spend on all these, these nice things that we want, as well as all these burdens with an aging population uh, that, that result of you know, fewer people in the workforce and more demands on healthcare and, and other services. Yeah, and just to hammer my, my point home before, because I think I, in a way, f- finish it. I mean, the reason I brought up the, the borrowing and the inflation at the same time is that if you get inflation of, say, 5 or 6%, the Bank of England really has to raise interest rates at some point, okay? We can't have interest rates at nearly zero for the next 30 years, okay? It's already been 13 years. Um, and at that point, all this supposedly cheap money that we've been borrowing suddenly becomes significantly more expensive, and you're in a spiral. I agree with you, Matt. We're, so we're, certainly not, um, we're certainly not taxing to pay off any debt. I'd be surprised if a, a penny of debt is paid off in the rest of my life. I just don't see the political impetus for doing it the the political impetus is always to go from one election to another and and promise more and more spending and that means more and more borrowing but that makes me very concerned that either you'll have to have an increase in interest rates which leads to a greater cost servicing the debt and of course it leads to people who've had very low mortgage rates for a very long time suddenly paying significantly more and not necessarily having the money to to do that and if the bank of england doesn't do that then it's just a stealth tax on savers, you know, because you can't really, without gambling your money in some way um, on the stock market or elsewhere, you can't hope to keep your savings uh, in line with inflation. So somebody pays somewhere along the line. This is why the MMT people are are so wrong. There there is no free lunch. I guess just to finish up for this podcast, you mentioned, Chris, how even the the kind of quote-unquote rosy 7.25% that even if we do believe that, it still isn't the sort of V-shaped recovery that we were hoping for. What sort of measures can we take to ensure that growth does continue beyond the initial bounce back that we're going to get from the lost output during COVID? What sort of things can we do to change the fundamentals of the UK economy? Well, it's not too different to what Adam Smith said a couple hundred years ago, peace, easy taxes, and the tolerable administration <laughs> of justice. And at least for now, uh, you know, geostrategic concerns aside, we, we have a, a general state of peace. Um, I think our taxes are anything but easy. And I'd like to see the government, even if in a revenue neutral way, albeit these decisions are often quite politically challenging, and uh, make some proper effort at tax reform. Uh, that's just a huge part of the economy that, that's worth a, a huge burden on people and on businesses. And the way we tax is not particularly efficient and it creates all sorts of issues and you know, thousands of pages of the tax code does keep lawyers and accountants in jobs, but it certainly makes everyone else's life quite difficult and, and reduces the country's prosperity. So I'd like to see some economic reform there. And when it comes to the toll administration of justice, I'd like to see a lot more effort thinking about the, the regulatory state that exists. The UK's got a huge opportunity after Brexit and, and after COVID to, to do some proper reforms and think about what kind of state we should have. I'm not confident the government's going to do any of this whatsoever, and I'd like to see them do it. But uh, it's something that we we need a kind of proper discussion about, and it's something the AI is trying to lead. Chris, if there was one kind of policy area that you'd focus on for trying to boost growth in the long term? 
there are many. I think probably labor market deregulation would be up there. Yeah. So much stuff now just deters people from employing people. Um, it, it's so difficult. It's so risky. And it keeps small businesses small. Just for a quiet life, you just want to stay small because once you get beyond a certain number of employees, you get all the headaches associated with just having lots of uh, employees who have all sorts of, you know, sometimes quite dubious rights. Um, and you then go up into, you know, you, you, I mean, take the, as a random example, take the government's junk, so-called junk food legislation. They've sensibly realized that so much of it's totally impractical. So they've said only businesses with 250 employees have to follow it. Well, if, you, if you're at 249, you know, are you really going to look to expand? So, yeah, I think labour market regulation really does need a good look at, but really across the board, and Brexit gives us such an opportunity to do this, let's look at the stuff that never benefited this country, was never introduced for our benefit, and holds us back. Maybe in some small ways. Maybe it's a kind of, you know, we need to look at a thousand things that are all quite small but make a difference. That's, um, that's what we, we desperately need to do. For me, it would be, and if Adam Smith was alive today, I'm, I imagine he'd say the same, peace, easy taxes and tolerable administration of planning regulations um, when it comes to housing and the kind of productivity impacts on that, quite aside from affordability when it comes to people uh, being able to actually get onto the housing ladder. There, there's also the question of, well, if you can't live where you'd like to um, because housing costs are too high, you can't get the job you want to, therefore you can't make the money you want to, you can't increase your wages as much, you can't contribute to the economy, the economic recovery quite as much as well. So deregulation of planning for me is probably one of, if not the key areas for ensuring that the recovery actually continues. Of course, the prospects on that, as we've discussed on this podcast many times are limited. There seems to be some positive movement there, although it certainly seems to have fallen out of the government's focus as this pandemic has continued. But Hopefully, as things start to recover, we'll, we'll start to remember that the UK's approach to housing is abominable and that we do need to make some pretty radical changes on that. But on that note, I think we're probably reaching the end of this episode of The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you like what you heard, then please do subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. Thank you to my co-host and our head of research, Matthew Lesh, as well as Chris Snowden, our guest for today the head of lifestyle economics at the institute of economic affairs and until next week thank you very much again for listening i've got this saved on the